All right, if we can make our way back to our seats, we'll get started today. Make our way back to our seats. All right, we'll get started this morning if we make our way back to our seats. the privilege this morning of introducing our guest speaker. Um, I say I have the privilege because he means a great deal to me. He's been a mentor of mine for the past three and a half years. He is the uh, lead pastor of Handong International Congregation, uh, which is the church associated with Handong Global University. He also teaches theology at Handong Global University, um, as well as is a uh, Navy Reserve chaplain. How he does all that, I'm quite unsure, uh, but he does. Uh, he's also uh, the, the husband of Tara Brown and the father of three beautiful children, uh, Saya, Hannah, and Jalen. Um, so if you would with me, please give a warm welcome to our guest speaker today, uh, Pastor Greg Brown. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here with you guys. Before we begin, if, if you would do me a favor, if you would take a second and pray for the person on your left and right, that God would speak to them in a special way this morning. And if you could pray for me, that God would empower me to speak exactly his words, and then we'll begin. So just take a second to pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much. We ask that your spirit would be present with us in a very special way this morning. We ask that you anoint the reading of your word um, that you would show us wonderful things from your law, and that each one of us would be refreshed and built up through this time together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, if you have your Bibles, you could turn with me to 2 Timothy 1, 15 through 18. I'll go ahead and read it for you. Uh, you know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phagellus and Hermogenes, May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he'll find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. How should we perform the ministry of refreshment? How should we perform the ministry of refreshment? Living in a world of sin means that we will often need to be refreshed and encouraged by others, and we'll often have to refresh those around us. We've all been, um, we're all negatively affected by trials, COVID, political discord, family issues that we go through, physical issues like my back, thing, my back issue. We're all affected by sin. And we're all affected by the sins of others. And so therefore, we will at times need people to be speaking into our lives, carrying our burdens, encouraging us, but we'll also need to do the same with others. As many of you guys are aware, 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter that he wrote right before he dies. And so as you're, thinking, as you're reading through the letter, it's good to think of it as someone's 
last words, which many times carry a lot more weight. He's encouraging his son in the faith, Timothy, to everyone's deserted me. Um, people have, are turning away from the faith. You be faithful, Timothy. Preach the word in season, out of season. Um, there's, there's a time that's happening now where people are neglecting the word of God. They're heaping up teachers who simply itch their ears. And so he speaks with power to his son in the faith to help him carry on after he's gone. And so he's waiting a possible, waiting a death sentence that actually happens. He says in verse 15, the majority of the believers in Asia had deserted him. They were previously supporters. And he names two people with very difficult names. Kind of mess up your throat saying them. Phagellus and Hermogenes. We don't know who these men were. We do know, obviously, by the context that they were people who deserted Paul and probably were ringleaders and others deserting him. Maybe they were like Job's friends. Oh, see, Paul, he's not really an apostle. See, Paul, this is, only, this is happening to him because he's not, he's not faithful to the Lord. And so maybe they were trumping up others to turn away from Paul as well. Um, however, in the midst of Paul's darkness, his death sentence in Rome before he dies, People turning away from him. His friends' churches that he founded were turning away. You see the book of 2 Corinthians. They were denying his apostleship. He writes a letter to them uh, saying that I am apostle. I started you guys. In the midst of this difficult situation, there's a guy who's a bright light to him. And his name is Onesiphorus. His name means prophet bearer or help bringer. This man lived out his name. When Paul was deserted by others, Onesiphorus sought him out and refreshed him. When Paul uses the word refreshed, it means to cool again. We need some cool again now in Seoul about this time, right? It means to brace him like fresh air. When Paul was in his last hours or last days or last months, he needed someone who would brace him like fresh air. Paul, the greatest apostle, possibly you could argue the greatest Christian ever who ever lived, needed someone to refresh him. Jesus, in his final hours before he goes to the cross, he calls his three chief disciples to pray with him for an hour, which turns into three hours, because he was weary unto death. Even the Son of Man, the Son of God, needed someone to refresh him. And no doubt, there are people here this morning that may be going through difficulties in their family life, emotional struggles, financial struggles. And there, there are people here this morning that need someone to be an Onesiphorus to them, to brace them like fresh air. How do we perform the ministry of refreshment? As we go through this sermon, we're going to look at six principles. So I give you an outline because it's kind of a lot. I have a tendency to do that. I really love James because he's a man after my own, my own heart. Because he likes to preach long sermons. <laughs> I was telling Levi, I said, when I go preach somewhere, I said, it won't be a long sermon today because I have about two or three shorter sermons, and those are the first ones. But if you invite me more than three times, you're going to get like the 50-minute, the 45-minute, the 60-minute sermon, but you guys are lucky. This is my first time preaching here today. So you, 35, maybe 40, um, but James is a man after my own heart. Praise God for men like him. Makes me feel better about myself. It's just not me. It's not, I'm not the only one. But you do have six principles. Um, here's the first principle. To perform the ministry of refreshment, 
We must reach out to those in need. We must reach out to those in need. Again, when everyone in Asia had deserted Paul, Onesiphorus went to go and see him and care for him. People were deserting Paul because associating with him could lead to their possible imprisonment or execution. During this time, Nero was ruling on the throne. Nero was known he would take people into his garden. He'd have Christians on stakes, and he would light them on fire in the middle of the night and take people parading through their garden. He would put Christians in the Colosseum and, 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 and uh, put flesh on them and sick the lions on them. And so associating with a prisoner of the state could have gotten the Christians in Asia and the Christians in Rome in trouble. So they were turning away from him, uh, especially in Rome. One author said this about Onesiphorus. He went to Rome at a time when every Christian was trying to get out of Rome. Every Christian was trying to leave Rome. Someone said this about friendships. I got this off of Facebook. So, In times of prosperity, our friends know us. When things are going well, they know who we are. But in times of difficulty, we tend to find out who our friends really are. When things are bad in our life, we know who our friends are. When all deserted Paul, Onesiphorus reached out to him, even risking his life to minister to him. We must do the same to practice the ministry of refreshment. Galatians 6.2 says, carry one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Christ took on our sin, took on our dirt, took on our personality disorders, took on our emotional insecurities, and he took on our shame, and he bore them on the cross so we would not have to bear them. In the same way, one of the things we do in fulfilling the law of Christ, loving our neighbor as ourselves, is we take on other people's dirt, other people's difficulty. Like Onesiphus, we go when everybody else is going the other direction, and therefore we prove that we're real friends. Ecclesiastes 7.4 says this, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. When you're reading wisdom literature, like Ecclesiastes or Proverbs or Psalms, when it talks about fool and wisdom, it's not talking about how you did on your SAT or how smart you are. It's actually dealing with a spiritual issue. Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Proverbs 9.10 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so when it says the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, it means a person who's worshiping God, a person because he's worshiping God and spending time with God is being made into his image. And our father is the father of the orphan and the father of the widow. He's near the brokenhearted. He doesn't run from them. When you were lost in your sin, he took on your sins and came down and became like you on this earth. And so the wise person, the one who's living in God's word and who's like him, is running to the house of mourning. The one who's like Christ is going near the one in the deathbed or the one who just tried to commit suicide or the one who's dealing with depression. Instead of going away because we don't feel like we know what to say, we might make things worse, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning because they're like their father. They run to Rome when everybody else is going the opposite direction. Proverbs seventeen seventeen says this, a friend loves at all times. And a brother 
is born for a time of adversity. Using Hebrew parallelism, he's, parallelism, he's just simply saying, a good friend is like your family. In fact, many times a good friend may be better than your family. They may be around when your family's not around. A good friend, a brother, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. Granted, as a pastor, I would say it's hard to reach out to people in pain. It's hard to call someone when they're going through difficulties in their marriage. Like I mentioned, we often feel like we don't know what to say, or we're afraid that if we say something, we actually may make things worse, right? It's difficult. I'm not saying it's not. It is difficult. But sometimes, it's, many times it's good to remember that the best thing we can do when someone is going through suffering instead of running the opposite direction is many times just be present. You don't have to know what to say. Many times it's good just to be beside them. When Job's friends were sat there and they mourned with Job for a certain amount of days and they said nothing, they did well. It's when they opened their mouths that things went bad. Many times what God has called us to do is simply to minister by our presence. Um, I'm a, as, I, as mentioned, I'm a chaplain in the Navy Reserves, and they call a lot of times our ministry is simply the ministry of presence in war, to be with people in war, to be with people in death, to be with people when they're hurting, sometimes people who don't even believe what the Bible says. So you can't really minister scripture necessarily. Sometimes we minister by simply being the one that's by them, by their side, listening to their story, and as God opens the door, being able to share the word of God with them. Many times, that's all you can do. You can't fix things. Only God can fix the situation, but you minister by being someone who's willing to be there and not just care about your feelings and your pleasure and your happiness. You're willing to go to the house of mourning. That's what Onesiphorus did. He was willing to go to the prison cell to be next to the prisoner who was soon going to die. He couldn't change his circumstance. He could pray. He could be beside him, but he couldn't change his circumstance, but he was present with him. Many times, that's what God is calling you to do as well. Just simply be present. And as you pray with them and as you seek God, maybe sometimes he gives you wisdom to say certain things or to relate to them through your trial, but simply to be present. Are you willing to reach out to those in need? There's an application question in your notes if you have that or when you go to your small groups. Why is it difficult to meet with others in times of adversity? Describe a time when someone faithfully ministered to you in a time of adversity. Here's the second point. To perform the ministry of refreshment, we must prepare and protect our families. We must prepare and protect our families. Verse 16. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. The first time Paul mentions Onesiphorus, he does in a prayer for mercy for his family. This implies that his family suffered in some way by Onesiphorus' ministry to Paul. No doubt they suffered by him being away perhaps for months or, or years for all we know. Some commentaries, commentator, commentator, commentators, <laughs> there we go, some commentators actually believe that Onesiphorus died in his ministry to Paul. Why is that? Simply for two reasons. One, by the fact that he gives a present tense prayer for the family um, that God would 
um, show mercy to them. And then he does a future tense prayer in verse 18. He says, may the Lord grant that they will find mercy. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. So by giving a future tense prayer for Onesiphorus, um, it's poten- there's, a good, there's a potential that maybe he was no longer around for all we know. At a minimum, Onesiphorus wasn't currently with him. They were either separated by distance or by death. With that said, this is the point. Again, that there was a certain amount of suffering that Onesiphorus' family went through um, because of his ministry. This is common for us who serve in ministry or when you're reaching out to those who are going through difficult times. There is strain on a family when a husband or wife is absent. There is extra spiritual warfare for those who are serving in in ministry. Many times it strongly affects the children. However, with that said, even though there can be negative effects from the spiritual warfare from serving in ministry, sometimes the absence of being being away to care for someone in in a hospital, let me say specifically as a parent, it's healthy for children to have parents who are involved in ministry. It helps them develop a ministry mindset. Delivers them from selfishness, which all children deal with. This is mine, like, and they don't want to share. By, by putting others first, it gives them a ministry mindset of caring for others. And it often leads them into a lifetime of ministry. Maybe not full-time vocational ministry, but whether they're working as a lawyer or a doctor, they're serving their church and they're getting involved and they're caring for people. Why? It was modeled for them. They saw it in their families. But... I should say this because it's very important to hear this. We should never sacrifice our families on the altar of ministry. We should never sacrifice our families on the altar of ministry. This happens a lot. I've been serving in the Korean context for 17 years. Seven years in Chicago as an English pastor, youth pastor, 11 years at Handong University. I've seen this a lot with PKs and MKs, parents, driving to the bone, caring for the people in the church, but neglecting their own children. I've seen many children that have turned away from the Lord because of neglect or have a strong anger towards the church or anger towards their family. Handong is known for their missionary kids, lots of scholarships that are given to them. So I have a lot of MKs, a lot of PKs, and many of them struggle with anger because they were on the altar of ministry. We should never, Paul says this in 1 Timothy 5, verse 8 and verse 4. It's when he's dealing with widows in the church. He says, anyone who does not take care of their family is worse than an infidel. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, he gives a requirement for either an elder or a deacon. For an elder, for sure. I have to go back and look at it. (laughs) That the elder runs his family well, meaning that if we're not excelling and caring for our family, then we are disqualified from serving in ministry leadership. How do we prepare and protect our families if you're going to do the ministry of refreshment where you're carrying other people's burdens and taking care of them? And how do we have a healthy balance with our families in ministry? Here's just four different ways. One, we prepare our families by having honest conversations with them. We prepare our families by having honest conversations. That means asking them, specifically for me with my wife, how is the balance of ministry and family going? Um, do they feel, do the children feel neglected? When I first got to Handong, and Handong, <laughs> when I first got to Hong, they made me a slave. <laughs> After the semester, I said, we were having this, this honest conversation. My wife said, yeah, uh, we didn't see you this semester. 
And she's like, we're not doing that again. I was like, yes, ma'am. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Um, but having honest conversations where you're talking about things, dis- discerning them. Also, second thing, um, let me add this in here. My wife is really good at this. Um, we just adopt, we're, we just adopted one child. We've been in the process of adopting another child. We've been, we've been denied twice on adoption for this second child. We're starting the third process for adoption. And as many of you know, even if you just have a child and you, haven't, you already have, have a second child, you have one, many times the first child at some point feels neglected because all of a sudden they were the center of the world. Well, for us, we got basically two kids, two kids dropped on us at once. A, a refugee lady in our church died. We were taking care of her kid while she was trying to move to Morocco. Then we had to start the process, and we'd already started the process of adopting another kid. So we got two at once. And so we had a double whammy in some sense. Um, and for my wife, she would let me know. She's like, Saya says things like, you know, like you care about Hannah more or something like that. She'd say things like that. And she would, my wife would let me know so I could make sure that my daughter, Saya, was getting enough attention in the, trans, the major transition for our family. So my wife, part of those honest conversations was my wife is a homemaker, so she's at home, and we were homeschooling at that time. Um, she would have those type of conversations to help me make sure that I'm not missing something, especially now that we have three kids in the house. We need to be a team. I've got to hear what she hears. I've got to tell her what, he, what, she, what I hear what I, so we can both make sure our kids have the proper balance and that we're there and involved in their lives. And so having honest conversations, including kids with the parents, is very important if you're going to protect your family while doing ministry. But here's the second thing. We prepare our families for busy seasons by talking with them beforehand and committing to make up missed time. Sometimes you can't help busy seasons. We can't help the fact that the mother died and all of a sudden we had to take care of a kid long term. We had to have honest conversations with our oldest daughter to help prepare her for those things. Sometimes it may mean that you're going to school to work on your MBA or to do something for graduate school to prepare you for something in the future. And you're going to have less time. And you're having these conversations. You're preparing. How can I make things up? But you're having these honest conversations and you're preparing them for busy seasons, including committing to make up missed time as best as possible. Third thing. In addition, we prepare and protect them by constantly praying for them. Even as Paul did with Onesiphorus' household. There was suffering that happened because of Onesiphorus' ministry to Paul. And Paul was praying for that family who was sacrificing. We should ask for mercy for our children, for our spouses. We should pray for protection over them. We should lift them up more than we lift. Not necessarily more, but we should lift them up. Spend quality time lifting them up as we pray for others as well. Fourth, we protect our families by always prioritizing them. Family members should always know that they are first. Yes, there'll be times of sacrifice and serving God and others, and when those times come, families must work together to best navigate those seasons. Edith Schaefer, uh, the wife of Francis Schaefer, gives wise counsel on balancing family and ministry in a book called What is Family?, Um, I took this quote from Pastor Steve Cole, a pastor in Flagstaff, Arizona, and he's sharing about this. He said this, as you may know, the Schaefers raised their their children at Labrie in an open home where many people came at all hours. In one chapter, Ms. Schaefer describes the family as a door with hinges and a lock. The hinges open to welcome those in need, but the lock 
gives the family time to grow and be refreshed for ministry. They did not damage their family by overcommitment to ministry, and yet they instilled in their children a ministry mindset. If we're going to protect our families as we do the ministry of refreshment, we must also have times where the door is open and we teach our, ch- our children generosity and caring for others and caring other people's burdens, but we also teach them to close the door so we can have time with one another. Christ demonstrated that with his disciples as he talks about, as he, he goes to have rest um, and have time alone. We need to go sleep and have rest. There, there's a time for open doors, but there's a time when you close the door to make sure they know that the family is first so we can be refreshed for ministry. Are you preparing and protecting your family? Are you preparing and protecting your family? Here's the third point. To perform the ministry of refreshment, we must persistently and practically serve others. We must persistently and practically serve others. Verse 16 and 18. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me, was not ashamed of my chains. Verse 18, you know well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. Again, verse 16, often refreshed. Verse 18, he helped me in many ways. The word helped is actually the Greek word where we get the word deacon from. Kind of like the word deacon simply means like someone who waits on tables. So many people actually believe that Onesiphorus was a deacon in Ephesus, the church Uh, where he came from. Prisons weren't very humane in those days. It's not like what you think of prison today. If Paul's in prison, we naturally think, oh, well, he's got a bed, and he's got a place to use the bathroom, and he's got food three times times a day. He may even get to go in the yard and go work out, and maybe, you know, Paul's building his prison body where his his pectorals are getting big, and his legs are getting small from just doing push-ups all the time, right? We have that type of mindset or thought of a prison, but that's not how prisons were in the ancient world. If you went to prison, you didn't get food. So how'd you get food? You had to have a family member go visit and provide food and, and, and make sure that you have what you need. If you use the bathroom, you typically did it on the floor somewhere. And so prisons stink. They were full of rats. Um, they were very inhumane in those days. And so Onesiphorus seemed to be the one that served that role for Paul while he was in prison. And so this means when Paul was hungry, he probably went and got him food. He, 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 he helped me in many ways. When he was thirsty, he got him a drink. When discouraged, he prayed with him. When rejoicing, we know, I think it's in Acts chapter 16, Paul prayed in prisons, or not prayed, sang in prisons, right? Maybe while he was there singing with him, right? No doubt, Onesiphorus refreshed him physically, emotionally, spiritually. You'll often have to do the same with others. You'll often have to persistently and practically serve others. And part of the reason that you'll have to be persistent is... Uh, adversity often comes in packs. There's often a season of adversity, a season of depression, a season of discouragement. Um, kind of like we see in the story of Job, we see that there was just, there's, there's family issues. As his wife says, why don't you curse God and die? He lost his children. He lost his business. He lost his physical health. And it makes sense because we're body, soul, and spirit. You're stressed. Your body starts to react. When I'm stressed, I get these white marks, these dry skin on my arms. I start turning into a white guy, right? And so my wife says, oh, you must be stressed. I'm like, I know. My body just reacts when I'm overstressed, right? You can't sleep. Your body, you start getting sick. And so 
Adversity often comes in packs. I think that's what Paul means in Ephesians 6 when he talks about being able to stand in the evil day. It's not one day. It's an evil season where adversity and strongholds and attacks of the devil is just coming against your family. Um, and we need to be able to stand in that time. And so, again, we have to minister persistently because these people often are going through lots of things, physical issues, emotional issues, work, stuff at home. And now they've got family issues because they're going off on their, their wife or their spouse because they're not emotionally where they need to be. And so many times you have to meet with them often, sometimes too much, right? It means listening and listening and listening again. It means giving wisdom. And then you come back and you're having the same conversation. You said this last week. It's like the same exact thing I just said. And it's like, oh, right? And then two weeks later, you're saying the same thing. Persistently, practically listening and meeting their needs. Because that's often how trials work. Now, how can we faithfully serve others, especially in difficult times, as Onesiphus helped Paul in many ways? I think we gain great insight by considering the Macedonian church ministry to the Jerusalem churches in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. That's what Paul said about them, 2 Corinthians 8, 3 through 5. The Macedonian churches were the church of Philippi and Thessalonica. There was a famine happening in Jerusalem. And so Paul, when they were encouraging the churches to give money to help them during the famine, uh, Paul says this, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. Here's the point I want you to see. The Macedonian churches who were poor, who were impoverished, were supporting the Jerusalem churches. Why? Because they gave themselves first of all to God, and God worked in them to give themselves to others. Ministry always happens, something very important for you to remember if you're going to do the ministry of refreshment. Ministry always happens out of the overflow, out of the overflow of our relationship with God. Um, John chapter 15 says, abide in me and you will produce much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing, meaning nothing of any eternal good. And so this means if we are not abiding in Christ, we cannot effectively minister to our family. We cannot effectively minister to people in our church. We cannot effectively minister to in the workplace. where We've got a difficult boss or a difficult coworker. Unless we are abiding in Christ, we will not produce much fruit. We must first give ourselves to God, then look for others and meet their needs. Now, I've experienced this in ministry in 2018. I burnt out. I told you Hondo made me a slave, especially when I first got there. I burnt out. I went to the president. I said, look, I, I can't do this anymore. I've, I've got to go. And I said, you, you got to let me go. And so five months, they allowed me to go home. It was so bad for me. I didn't know if I could do ministry anymore. I was just burnt out. I, ha I was having physical responses, loud noises. And we also had, a, earlier we did have the earth. We had a major earthquake at Handong. We were the epicenter of an earthquake in 2000. So I had both there was a little bit of PTSD and burnout going on there. Um, and I literally didn't know if I was going to be able to do ministry again. Um, so I've experienced some of these things, and I've seen this with people in ministry. If you're not giving yourself first to the Lord, guess what will happen? One of the first symptoms you'll start to notice, you don't even desire to minister to people. <laughs> you could have been someone who was zealous and serving the church and doing small groups, but when you're not first giving yourself to God, Philippians chapter 2, 12 through 13 says, he works in us to will 
and do of his good pleasure. This means when you're not giving yourself to the Lord, first of all, then you don't even desire to serve. You don't desire to help other people out. You don't desire to see other people come to know Christ. Because when Christ is not first, there's no overflow happening in your life. And all of a sudden what happens is these people start being burdens instead of joys. Instead of thankfulness to serve the children at the church and thankfulness to get involved with the small, small group, they're a burden. It's not a joy. And so you'll find, yourself, you'll find yourself lacking a desire, but then all of a sudden you'll start to find yourself more frustrated with people. <laughs> more frustrated, less loving. Uh, I've struggled. I got into ministry in 2003. I got uh, started serving at a Korean church. They had split right before I got there. They split like a year or two after I had been there. God really put me in the trenches in ministry to prepare me for ministry. And I remember being in a seminary class and uh, tears in my eyes asking the professor like how he has stayed in ministry so long with all this sin that happens in the church. And I'm literally about to burst out in tears. <laughs> in my, in the, in this, and he, he said, I'm, I'm going, I'm actually going to be like James today. I'm, Brother James, I'm going to be like you. I'm going long. This, you guys are a good audience. When, I, when it's a good audience, I think it affects the preaching. So um, I remember he said this. He said, part of the reason I've been able, been able to stay in ministry, and he was describing one of his pastoral friends committing adultery, leaving the ministry, leaving his wife. He says, one of the ways that I've stayed in ministry is I have a strong theology of sin. I realize how strong sin is in our hearts and how we're prone to it, but I also have a strong theology of God and the hope that God can bring in the midst of sin. Uh, I don't even know why I went there, but (laughs) if you're serving, you'll find yourself, okay, that's why I went there. I've seen a lot of pastors, because I often ask, you know, like, you've been in ministry 30 years. How did you last so long? You know, because I burnt out and I still struggle with desires of getting out. And I was like, man, I just want to be a faithful elder and not have to deal with all the criticism and all the difficulties that come. I just want to be, I want to serve. I just don't want to serve too much. And so I kind of just want to get out just a little bit, right, in some way. And one of the things I've seen with, I talk to these pastors that have been in the ministry 30, 40 years, and many times they're like war heroes, not war heroes, Um, war veterans, they're heroes, but they're veterans. In the sense of this, I find that in the military, sometimes people who have been in war, been in battle, there's a lot of wounds. They're faithful, but they're wounded. And they're bitter. Bitter about the country, bitter about the people they, they, they went to war with. And that's how I find a lot of pastors are who have been in the ministry for a long time. It's kind of like an, all of a sudden they start sharing and it's like all this years of criticism comes out of their mouth that they've received and, and heartache. And sometimes there's like ministry PTSD, sometimes for the pastor's wife and sometimes for the children as well. And I'll listen to them and I'm thankful to hear, but I'm also like, Lord, I don't want to be... I don't want to be hurt. (laughs) I don't want to be like this old crusty veteran that's got all this PTSD and scars. And I sometimes hear it coming out of my mouth, right? Um, Frustrated with people, less loving. If we're not giving ourselves first of all to the Lord and then the others, then you'll find yourselves more hurt, more frustrated. You'll find yourself, like myself, more prone to burnout and eventually bitterness. Bitterness at God. Bitterness at the church. I was talking with a pastor a chaplain in the military not too long ago, he shared how he had burnt, that how he'd burnt out of his church, stopped serving in ministry, then God called him back, and then he went into chaplaincy. He told me this. He said the other day, he's, he's in Korea serving, and his wife is in the States because it's a, a ministry where your family can't be with you. And he said, my wife drove, drove to church the other day, and she just couldn't go in. And so she just went home. 
He says, ever since our first church, she's had church PTSD. She just hasn't been able to step back into the church. Um, now, again, I believe that one of the, the remedy for this is giving myself first of all to the Lord. Giving myself first of all to the Lord because Christ ministered to people who murdered him. And in the midst of being murdered on the cross, he prayed for them, Lord, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He still was overflowing with, uh, with love for them, even as he was being persecuted. The ministry of refreshment isn't necessarily an easy ministry. It sounds good, but it's not necessarily easy. Um, we'll talk about this more, but sometimes it comes with a lot of pain um, with, with it. We must give ourselves to the Lord by abiding in the word, prayer, worship, fellowship with the saints, accountability. Are you giving yourselves first of all to the Lord and then to others? If not, you'll find yourself more of a taker instead of a refresher. Here's the next point. To perform the ministry of refreshment, we must accept and empathize with others. We must accept and empathize with others. Verse 16. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me, this is the point, and was not ashamed of my chains. This means that when Onesiphorus visited Paul, he didn't condemn him. He didn't say, oh, Paul, if you just had more faith, then God would set you free. He didn't condemn him. He wasn't ashamed of him. He just accepted him as he was. Again, this is where Job's friends failed. Initially, they just remained and mourned with him. And when they did that, they did well. But eventually, their true colors showed, and they showed their shame of him, right? They poured condemnation on him. They said he was suffering from sin and called him to repent. Like the Asian Christians who deserted Paul, Job's friends were ashamed of him and his suffering. In, a con in contrast, we must accept people where they are, just as Onesiphorus did. Now, with that said, yes, certainly, there are times to rebuke and correct. I'm not saying that. There are times to rebuke and correct, but we must wisely discern those times and when's the best time to do it. Um, because sometimes people are not yet ready to hear and we need to discern. Romans 12, 15 says this, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn, meaning that you empathize, that you're excited for them instead of being, well, why did they get the promotion? And why didn't I get a scholarship? Why am I, instead of being, we need to be happy for those who are going through good things, going through good times. And at the same time, be willing to enter into their pain as we mourn with them. When refreshing others, many times those hurting are primarily looking for empathy. Someone who understands them emotionally and who will stand beside them. And this is very important for husbands like myself to hear. Because sometimes my wife doesn't want the correction. It's not time. I need to discern that's part of wisdom and ministry. Sometimes I need to just listen and hear and empathize. Sometimes I need someone to say, it's okay to cry. And it's okay to feel betrayed because you were betrayed. And it's okay to vent. And yes, that wasn't fair what happened there. And at the same time, and we, we see this in the Psalms, the honest sharing of a person they're shooting arrows at me, and they're lying about me. It's not, it may not be the time to say, well, God works everything out to the good. That's true, right? Sometimes there's a place for this honest sharing and saying, that's not right. But, again, in the Psalms, we do see very many times at the end of, they're shooting arrows about me, they're lying at me, but God, 
There's a place for the open sharing. There's a place for the empathy. But then there's also sometimes there's a place where we mourn without hope. As 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about when someone dies. I don't want you to mourn like the world without hope. We do need to be someone that can have honest sharing with. But we also need to be the ones in the right time to say, but God at the end of the psalm. There's both. It's not either or. It's both. Um, and Nesiphorus was someone who was, was not ashamed of him. It was someone who empathized with him, who rejoiced with him, who probably sang with him in the prison, but also listened to him when Paul probably wasn't in the best spirits because we all get into those places. And there's a time for that as well. Are you willing to accept and empathize with others and other, in order to refresh them? Guess what? You can't be refreshed by someone who doesn't listen to you, Right? We need people to listen to us so they can better and better effectively know how to minister us. In fact, part of listening is asking those good questions, you know, uh, asking follow-up questions. And, and this is what I hear you saying. And then when we feel heard, we feel loved, right? So I had this one professor that I always used to say, one of the ways that you love is by listening. And many times my wife is talking to me and I find my mind running all over the place. I'm like, oh, I'm not loving my wife right now. <laughs> because I'm not listening. I'm, I'm, I'm present. I'm looking at her. But my mind's thinking about work. My mind's thinking about this. Or sometimes my mind is like, man, how long is this going to go? <laughs> I have these. I'm like, I'm not loving my wife right now. I'm not empathizing with her. I'm not being present with her. Um, if we're going to do the ministry of refreshment, you've got to be willing to accept and empathize with others in order to refresh them. They know that you care when you listen to them and, you, and you're beside them. Here's the next one. To perform the ministry of refreshment, we must accept various inconveniences. We must accept various inconveniences. Verse 17. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. Um. So there are various inconveniences when Onesiphorus went to Rome. Even the trip from Ephesus to Rome was difficult in those days. It covered about 2,000 kilometers, which is about a little bit over 1,200 miles. Most likely he had to travel by boat and by foot. However, when he got to Rome, his job wasn't done. He didn't even know which prison he was in. That's why it says he searched hard for him. Maybe there were many prisons and it was difficult to find the right one. Maybe the Roman officials weren't helpful and probably rude. Maybe we know because Christians were leaving Rome because of the persecution, even when he tried to ask Christians for help where Paul was, they were probably like, why, why is he asking for about this prisoner of the state? And realize, thinking that they could be getting in trouble by helping him out. It was very difficult for Onesiphorus to even find Paul. It's often the same for us. If we're going to practice the ministry of refreshment, we must be willing to accept inconvenience. At times, it means tossing our original plans for the day to minister to someone in pain. It means going to bed a little later because now you've got to have a conversation, a phone call at night, and you already know, oh, this may not be good. <laughs> I had that just a couple of days ago. I was like, full day, full day of work and stuff like that, and all of a sudden I get a, a, a a text saying, can you call me tonight? This couple that's having some, some, having some issues and I have to spend some time in prayer, praying through the Lord's Prayer. It's 10 o'clock at night. I go to bed like 10, 30, 11. And so I can be ready to go ahead and call this person to have a conversation that was probably not gonna be good. It means going to bed later. Sometimes it means getting up a little earlier. At times it means being frustrated by caring for a person who won't listen. 
and who keeps making the same dumb decisions. I don't have the gift of mercy. I'm like, that's just dumb. <laughs> My wife has a gift of mercy. Um, we, have this one, we had this one lady that we used to counsel, minister to together. And uh, she said, if I need rebuke, I go to Pastor Greg. If I need mercy, I go to Pastor Greg's wife. And sometimes when we're ministering together, I'll be going after her, and my wife will come in and say something gentle. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah that's, that's good. She needs that too. You know, it's kind of, they need both. Um, but I, I just, I'm not that good with that stuff. There are various inconveniences that come with the ministry of refreshment. Guess what? It's always easier just to do nothing. As it would have been for Onesiphorus, instead of making a 2,000-kilometer trip by boat and, and then not knowing, and no long, no, we don't know how much he had to travel when he got to Rome to find him. However, if we're going to do this ministry, we must, we must accept inconvenience, including at times, and this is a hard one, being unappreciated. Guess what happens? When people experience trials, including yourself and myself, we tend to be totally self-focused. Our trial, our world is the biggest thing that's happening, right? We're playing the criticism over in our mind. We go to sleep. We can't sleep at night. We're totally consumed with ourselves. This extreme self-focus can at times blur the lines between who's actually trying to help us and who's trying to hurt us. For this reason, ministers and refreshers are often unappreciated, criticized, and even at times hated. Obviously, that wasn't true with Paul at this juncture with Onesiphorus. Uh, he was very appreciative of, of Onesiphorus, but with the Corinthians, he had to write a whole letter saying he, proving that he was an apostle of a church he founded. They talked about his physical appearance wasn't very, uh, wasn't very, he's very weak. His speaking's not very good. In his writing, he's powerful, but when you see him, he's nothing. They criticized his physical appearance. They criticized his preaching, which all pastors have some experience with. And so many times, the ministry of refreshment comes with a lot of inconveniences and difficulties. Christ gave his life for the world. The majority of the world rejects him. Some hate him, and many Christians often take him for granted. We often take him for granted. To do this ministry, we must accept the inconvenience that comes with it. You won't always be loved. You won't always be appreciated. Sometimes you may be hated, and, and, and even though you're loving them and caring for them, it's just difficult. Here's the last one, and I'm just going to give a couple of quick application points. I don't have any track of time, so I don't know how bad this is right now. I apologize, Levi. <laughs> to perform the ministry of refreshment, we must focus on God's reward. Very important. We must focus on God's reward. Verse 18. May the Lord grant that he'll find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. When he says uh, receiving mercy on that day, he it seems to refer to what we call the judgment seat of Christ, um, where believers will be judged, in the sense not for their sins, but they'll be judged based on their works, and there'll be reward or there'll be loss of reward. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about this, how there'll be some who just escaped the fire, who entered in with no reward, and others, because they built on with gold and precious stones, that they'll be rewarded. And so this mercy seems to refer to to uh, uh, Onesiphorus being rewarded by God on that day. It reflects the promise of Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. There's a, a, a mercy that we receive here on this earth, but there's also a grace that we receive eternally. Certainly we see this blessing in the parable of the sheep and the goats. Um, 
In Matthew chapter 25, 35 through 40, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but obviously it says for those who, uh, he says, what you did to the least of these, you did to me. And he talks about those who fed him, clothed him, and visited his brothers in prisons. These, what seems like just kind of manual ministries, which sometimes we look down upon, he says, when you did this to them, you did it to me. And then he says this, take your inheritance in the kingdom for what you did to the least of these you did to me. Take your reward. Here's your reward for this refreshment, for bringing clothes and for bringing food and being with them in prison, the exact same stuff that Onesiphorus did. Here's your reward for your faithful service. There's a reciprocal blessing for the ministry of refreshment, both eternally and presently. Proverbs 11.25 says this, Proverbs 11.25, he who refreshes others shall himself be refreshed. Meaning that even though there's sacrifice, you didn't get sleep last night because you had to be on the phone with someone who was struggling and um, having bad thoughts and making bad decisions. Yeah, you were really tired the next day, but guess what? There's a refreshment that comes. There's a blessing that comes because God sees. Christ said this in John 13, 17 in, 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 in the context of washing other people's feet, which I think is symbolic of doing ministry to discourage people or people struggling with sin, this, 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 this washing them. He says in verse 17, John 13, blessed will you be if you do this. Blessed can be tra- translated happy. There's a joy when you're putting others first. It may not always be present, but it comes as you're serving others. There's a reciprocal blessing. Now, this is very important, focusing on God's reward, especially when your ministry is rejected, demonized, unappreciated, or it at least appears temporarily that it's not fruitful. There's no change happening. There's no growth. It doesn't seem like they're progressing. If you only focus on that person because you see the fruit that is apparently happening while you're ministering, then you'll quit. They say in the, in the U.S., 1,700 pastors leave the ministry every month and never return. I think part of that happens with me because I'm focusing on the fact that it doesn't seem like we're growing. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of transformation. Jeremiah gets a ministry, J- Jeremiah chapter 1. He says, uh, God says he's going to make his head like flint and that they're not going to listen to him, basically. That was going to be Jeremiah's ministry. That they, Isaiah's ministry in chapter 6, um, he says, go and, go and preach. He says, how long should I go and preach? Until the streets are in rubble. He describes how they've, they've been given a hardened heart. Isaiah's ministry was not going to be fruitful, but he was called to be faithful. So if Isaiah kept his mindset on the people who were rejecting him or Jeremiah on the people that were rebelling and going to be conquered by Babylon, then he probably would have quit just like many quit ministry today. If you're going to do the ministry of refreshment, you've got to keep your mind and your eyes on God's reward. God's reward. Hebrews 6.10 says this. Hebrews 6.10. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help him. As you spend late hours on the phone with that girl who's struggling. As you meet with that couple who's about to break up, about to get divorced. As you minister to the person who keeps having mental health issues and they keep relapsing and you're beside them and you're caring for him. God is not unjust. He sees your labor. He sees you caring for people who don't care for you, who don't appreciate you, don't love you, don't tell you thank you. He sees it and he will reward you even if you don't get rewards in this life. Even if you're rejected in this life and criticized, he sees it and you will be rewarded. 
And if you're going to do this ministry, you have to keep your eyes on the one who will reward you, who will say, well done, you good and faithful servant. You've got to keep your eyes on him. Otherwise, it'll be easy to quit. Here's just a couple of quick applications. We've talked about how to perform the ministry of refreshment. Now we're just going to briefly consider how to respond when we're the ones being refreshed. Really quick, real quick. One, when refreshed, we should constantly give thanks to God and to the refresher. We should constantly give thanks to God and the refresher. We would never know about Onesiphorus. He didn't have a public ministry. Didn't, from what we know, again, he possibly a deacon. The word used of deacon was used of him. He was a, a, a manual minister doing the behind-the-scenes work that nobody saw in the prison cell, not on the pulpit necessarily. Um, but yet he was faithful. We wouldn't know about him unless Paul mentioned him here in 2 Timothy, which was a form of thanksgiving to him and his family. He's memorialized by Paul for his faithful ministry. Paul demonstrates his pleasure and thanksgiving before Timothy, the churches in Ephesus, and the world through this letter. In the same way, it's important for us to be thankful for a refresher's ministry because it's so easy for us to take them for granted. The worship team who gets up, who practices long hours, gets up and serves, and we, sometimes you say thank, thank you to the, the pastor, but many times we forget to thank the worship team. And the children's ministry who's serving and missing the sermon doesn't get the same type of biblical refreshment because they're serving others during this time. Or the greeters who greet us, <laughs> you know, it's so, we take their ministry for granted, and therefore we don't say thank you to them. You know, we don't encourage them and build them up. One of the things, if we're the ones who are receiving, we, must, we should remember, like Paul, he's basically thanking Onesiphorus through this letter and also the family who had suffered because of the sacrifice. We need to do the same. We need to take time to thank those who are serving us and appreciate them and care for them. Uh, Galatians chapter 6, I think it's verse 5. It says, let him who receives... Um, Share in all good things. Um, let him who is taught share in all good things with him who teaches. Thanksgiving, prayer, etc. Now, refreshers, people who refresh us, sometimes feel awkward in receiving appreciation, but they're usually always thankful for it. Even if it feels a little awkward, thank you for this and thank you for the sermon or thank you for your, your ministry, they often appreciate it. And we should give that to them, even as Paul does. Um, if you're serving in leadership at your company or you're a boss and you have, I have two administrators that serve under me, I want to make sure that every time they do something, I say thank you. I appreciate them. I recognize them. Uh, they're the backbone, doing everything behind the church. Even though I may be publicly in front, we couldn't survive without them. I want to make sure that we reward them and honor them. Second, when refreshed, so we want to give thanksgiving to God and to the people. First, second, when refreshed, we should constantly remember our refreshers in prayer, praying both for them and their families. Paul prays twice for Onesiphorus and his family in this passage. Um, that was Galatians 6.6, 6, sorry, not Galatians 6.5. The one who receives instruction in the word should share in all good things with their instructor. But one of the good things we should pray, we should do is share with prayer. Pray for protection for the pastors of this church and those who are serving. They, they end up with, they deal with a lot of discouragement Pray for their intimacy with God. Sometimes you think that pastors and ministers don't need to go deep in the word of God. It can be when your job is studying the word of God, sometimes it can become lethargic for some people. Pray that they would have refreshing times in God's word. Pray that they would bear much fruit in their serving. 
Do you often pray for those who refresh you? Do you often give them thanks, thanks for what they do? Um, how can we perform the ministry of refreshment? How can we embrace people like a breath of fresh air? We must be willing to reach out to those in need. Who's separating from the group? Who's discouraged or going through a difficult time? We need to see them, recognize them, and like Onesiphorus, take time to go out and reach out. Even if that means, how are you doing? And how can I, how can I pray for you? We must prepare and protect our families who often receive the brunt, even if it's the warfare that comes from serving. We must persistently and practically serve others. You have to listen and listen again and, and, and share wisdom and wisdom again and go meet up with them again, even when you're tired and you don't feel like it. We must accept and empathize with others. The way they go through things many times is based on how they've, things that have happened through their life. When you've experienced trauma in your life, difficulty in your family life, the way they may go through something at work may be very difficult, different than you do. And you may look at them and be like, what's wrong with that person? They're all... Well, we all, your body remembers. Your, your emotions remember. My body remembers my burnout. It rem- I'm a lot more emotionally weak than I was before that. And I think it's a good thing because I can now understand others I minister to. Your body remembers. And so we may be prone to be discur- upset at them and why are they doing this. But that, that's, well, the way they respond is a, based on something they've gone through in their past, how they've been raised, some difficulty they've gone through. And we need the ability to empathize. Even though, like I said, I I don't do that well. So I'm preaching to myself as I share that. To perform the ministry of refreshment, we must accept the various inconveniences, including not being appreciated. Finally, to perform the ministry of refreshment, you got to keep your eyes off the storm. You got to keep your eyes off the people. It's encouraging when they're growing, but even if they go backwards again, you got to keep your eyes on God and his reward because that's who you're ultimately serving. 